Good morning, church. Our scripture reading today is found in the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, verses 11 through 22, which you can find on page 6 in your bulletin, pages 6 and 7. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near, for through him, we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too, are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Chrissy. Well, if you would turn with me to page eight of your bulletins, if you're not there already, you'll find our mission statement printed on that page, and as we kick off our ministry's fall season, what we've decided, as we often do each year, is that it's a good time to refresh our understanding of and our commitment to our church's mission. And you say, well, what is that mission? Well, there it is right in front of you. Our mission is to build a gospel community that is intentionally, spiritually diverse, cross-cultural, and neighborhood-centered, for the good of our neighbors and the glory of Jesus Christ in Columbia Heights, Mount Pleasant, Adams Morgan, and beyond. And so what we're doing each Sunday this month is that we're examining one key phrase in that fairly lengthy mission statement, one key phrase, one week at a time. And so first we looked at gospel community, and then last week we studied what it means to be a spiritually diverse community, and you can find those sermons online, and today we're taking a look at a third commitment of ours, and that is, well, let's pause and pray. Let's pray. Jesus, we're confident that you're here because your people have gathered, your word is opened up because of your promise that you fill your people when we come together in Jesus' name 
in Jesus' name and even despite our differences, that in an unusual way you bring about a spiritual unity and a vibrancy because you are here. And we pray that you would do that. We pray that you would bless your word. We pray that you would open our hearts. We pray that every single person would come away with a sense that they genuinely encountered the living Christ. It's a tall order, but we wouldn't ask it if you didn't promise it. So we're asking it in Jesus' name. Amen. I am a Christian, a sinner saved by grace. A husband, a father, and you know, a pastor. I'm also a Korean American, which for me means that I was born in Dayton, Ohio, to two immigrants from South Korea and raised in a culturally Korean home in Southern California. Early on in life, of course, I understood that my Korean family was a bit different from others. I think maybe watching Leave It to Beaver and the Brady Bunch accelerated that awareness. <laughs> my earliest memory of racial shame was in the first grade, when for the first time I was mocked with a racial slur. I remember that clearly. And speaking of the playground, I'm not sure why it came up so often, but I do remember repeatedly being asked, are you Chinese, are you Japanese? And after responding to both in the negative, being asked, then what are you? And then what are you? It was only later that I learned that not every kid is asked to explain or defend what they are. Today I count it as a gift to be married to a woman to whom I don't need to explain who I am. Well, at least ethnically. Prior to becoming a pastor myself, in all my years of being a professing Christian, I can't remember, I can't remember hearing a sermon in which my minority experience was acknowledged or my racial identity was explicitly affirmed. And that's not a complaint, not in this moment, not a complaint. That's simply to point out that early on, I, I had to learn to integrate my faith with this massive part of my identity almost entirely on my own. And at different points in that process, I've alternated between being the conflict-averse cultural assimilator and the angry Asian man. Of course, over the years, I myself have battled racial prejudice of my own, especially after being repeatedly harassed by the Mexican boys in the locker room. I've since repented of that contempt and false sense of superiority but I know that I'm not done with racial sin. I continue to repent of even the subconscious prejudices that I know I hold against different types of people every day, which again and again brings me back to my primary identity 
I am a sinner saved by grace. That's a tiny snapshot of my ethnic and cultural identity. I'm happy to share more with you. That's my story. What's yours? What's your story? Because we want to hear from you. We want to know you. That story matters to us. You matter to us. See, because one of our priorities as a church here at Grace Meridian Hill, you just read it, is to build a cross-cultural community, one that increasingly reflects the racial diversity of our richly diverse neighborhood, a community that intentionally and even sacrificially gathers an ethnically mixed group of people into caring, mutually dependent, and sometimes messy, truth be told, relationships in the family of Christ. And so if you are ethnically Indonesian raised in the Philippines, or ethnically Nigerian raised in the U.S., you're a part of our family. Whether you're of Persian descent or Peruvian or Guatemalan descent or an American of Taiwanese descent, you're a part of our family. If you're a proud Southerner from Tennessee or a wonderful white Michigander, whether you're a toddler or toddler twins from Latvia, or teenagers from down the street on Gerard Street, you are a part of our family. If you're an African-American or a Latin American or an Asian American or not an American, or you have no idea how to describe yourself, you know what? You're a part of the family of Christ. Family, after all, is how the Apostle Paul here in this passage describes the multi-ethnic community of Jesus. As we see in verse 19, he puts it there that together in the gospel we are members of Christ's household. This is a passage that offers us this glorious picture, this lofty vision this almost seemingly unattainable picture of interracial unity and equity. We've studied these verses in detail in the past, and so this morning I'm simply going to give you some broad strokes, drawing out some lessons about the nature of cross-cultural community. So what is it? What is cross-cultural community? Well, three things. Number one, cross-cultural community is built on Christ. Cross-cultural community is built on Christ. In verse 14, the Apostle Paul writes, For he himself, Christ himself, is our peace. You notice there, Paul doesn't simply say that Jesus gives us inter-ethnic peace. He is our peace. It is found in him as we ourselves are found in him. In verse 20 and 21, Paul also tells us here about a, a spiritual house that we're being built into, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with 
Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. Which means that in the church, this endeavor to build healed relationships, this endeavor of what's called racial reconciliation, this harmony among people that have otherwise sometimes dividing differences between themselves, this endeavor is not primarily a sociological endeavor, is not primarily a political endeavor, it is a spiritual endeavor that needs to be grounded in Christ. This is just too easily missed. That racial reconciliation, dear friends, is impossible apart from Jesus. Impossible to be attained in its fullness as God in Christ has promised to grant us as a gift. Jesus is the foundation of true inter-ethnic harmony and equity in the church. And what does that mean, that he's our foundation? It means, first of all, that Jesus is the pattern of cross-cultural community. What I mean by that is the story of Christ and his relationship to us is itself a cross-cultural story. That the Son of God dwelled with the Father and the Spirit for all of eternity in heaven in what we might call his natural cultural environment, his indigenous environment. Yet according to the eternal plan of God, the Son was sent to save sinners. And what he did was he left his natural environment, his cultural setting, and he crossed over from heaven to earth. And he, by an unfathomable act of love, gave himself in personal discomfort at great cost to himself, entered into a new cultural environment, into our humanity, literally into our flesh and blood, in order that he might walk in our steps, that eventually at the end of his life he might stand before the court of heaven in our place as our representative to die and rise again on our behalf for our salvation. But this good news of grace started with him crossing into our human culture. And so when we say that we desire to be a cross-cultural community, we're simply saying that we want to love as Jesus has loved us. That we want to look at one another and step into each other's worlds. To get into each other's which is different from getting under each other's skins, though we'll do that sometimes too, so that we might learn to see the world through different eyes and feel the world through different hands and hearts, to walk as one another walks and learn to say, dear friend, dear brother, dear sister, what's it like to be you.
to say, what's it like to weep as you weep over the pain and injustice or oppression that you or the people which you represent might feel? What is it like for you to read that headline, to experience that event, to be in this very community together? What's it like to be you? You see, that's what cross-cultural love is. At the heart of interracial harmony is self-sacrificial, other-centered, incarnational love. And Jesus is at the center of it all. But there's a second sense in which Christ is our foundation. He's not only the pattern, but he's also the power of cross-cultural community. This new and ethnically mixed family that Paul describes in verse 20 is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. And you may not know what a cornerstone is, though if you want to check one out, you can go outside the front doors and around the corner and you will find an engraved rock in the middle, brick in the middle portion of the corner of the building, which is traditionally the stone upon which the entire edifice rests. And so you can see the picture that Paul is painting, he's telling us that Jesus is the support structure upon which the entire cross-cultural house rests. Furthermore, in verse 14, we're told, for he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. Now, if you're listening carefully, that's strange language before us. We're told that Jesus has made Jew and Gentile these two groups one. He has made all groups of individuals representing different tribes, tongues, and languages, and nations, and ethnic groups that in Christ, for those who belong to him, he has made them one. He has destroyed the barriers that separate us. But how can Paul talk like that when racial division and hostility not only abounds clearly, but sometimes can be the worst in the church? And here's how. Jesus on the cross and in his resurrection, Paul is telling us, has already accomplished everything we need to be his reconciled people. We still need to avail ourselves of the spiritual power that he has given to us. But we need to believe and know that by his blood, Jesus has already purchased every spiritual resource needed to heal our racial divisions. We don't believe that, do we? 
But here we have this passage that has brought to us the redemption of Christ and the reconciliation of his people, talking about it as though it's an accomplished reality. And it is, spiritually. We're just now called to work it out in practical relational reality. So here we're offered genuine power in the gospel to grow in cross-cultural unity. You know, all throughout the first half of this chapter, Ephesians 2, which we don't have printed for you, we're told again and again of all these wonderful promises of the benefits of what we have in Christ. In verse 1, we're told that you were dead in your transgressions and sins, which if we would just believe it a little bit better, we would really believe how deep our racial sins really can embed itself into our hearts and into our social structures. That there's no part of us that hasn't been distorted by sin, our minds, our desires, our wills, our relationships, our institutions. If we believe this, Jesus has given us a resource here to see the world with new lenses, to see how bad the problem really can be. That we might not turn away from racial brokenness with a blind eye or an apathetic heart. He has told us, you were dead in your transgressions and sin. Sin is a real problem. Will we believe it? Will we avail ourselves of this resource to diagnose the true deep root of our racial sin? And then verses 8 and 9, we're also told this wonderful promise of grace. It is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourself. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. In other words, salvation is not from yourself, including your own ethnic heritage. So it's not something that you can grab a hold of and make your primary identity something that you can lord over other people with the illusion of superiority. Everything that we have in God, in Christ, is a gift. It's grace. And the grace of God therefore ends all boasting. And the cross of Christ undercuts all illusions of racial superiority if we would avail ourselves of the story of God's grace. And verse 4 tells us that because of his own great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. And where we're given all these resources of spiritual and emotional strength to love one another, even at great cost to ourselves. Where we're told that we are made alive with Christ. Where we're given life-giving power to move in. To, to draw near to each other. To listen to each other without defensiveness. And if your heart is anything like mine, it really does take a spiritual, supernatural work of God to not be defensive when you're listening to somebody, especially when they're telling you something wrong that you did against them. We've received love and mercy from God, and so now we have grace to love even those that might treat us like enemies and forgive those who might have committed racist sins against us. All the resources that we need, and plenty more far beyond what this passage promises to us, that Jesus has made available 
for the reconciliation of his people. And if we have not yet achieved this in the church, then it's because, dear friends, we have not sufficiently turned to Christ. That we have not sufficiently acknowledged and repented of our racial sins, which infects not only our conscious thoughts and beliefs, but also our subconscious thoughts and beliefs about one another, which not only infects our beliefs, but also our interpersonal relationships, and not only our relationships, but also our institutions and social structures, policies, norms, standards, and when we do not sufficiently repent of these things and dismantle these things with zeal for the cross of Christ, then we do not sufficiently seek Christ for his wisdom. Jesus, how do we do this? To be on our knees before him saying, Jesus, we know it's complicated. You alone can fix it. We would not sufficiently seek Christ to help us navigate the quandaries and the confusion and so much confusion that's out there as to how we can move forward through our racial impasses. Christ who offers us the power of his death and resurrection to grow and change. What we believe as a community that Jesus is the foundation of growing in cross-cultural relationships. We, we believe that this is actually one of the primary fruits that the Bible gives us as evidence of a life being changed. Cross-cultural community is built on Christ. Secondly, cross-cultural community seeks a deep peace. A deep peace. You might have noticed the word peace several times throughout the passage. Verse 14, for he himself is our peace who has made the two groups one. Again, in the middle of verse 15, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And in verse 17, we're told he came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who were near. Jesus promises peace. Who doesn't want peace? The question is, which peace? What kind of peace? Because it's easy, isn't it? To simply want to uh, go down the path of least resistance in the name of achieving peace. Uh, to simply brush aside those harder conversations, uh, to sort of minimize those more painful differences, uh, to kind of get through and land with something that kind of looks like peace, might smell like peace, but isn't the real thing, at least not what scripture here is talking about, a true peace. You see what the Bible is giving to us is a, a deep peace, a, a thick peace, not a superficial peace. Our tendency as people is to flee from anything that makes us uncomfortable, isn't it? We are allergic to any kind of discomfort. Which is an interesting thing, because if you pay attention to the New Testament, you'll find nowhere, anywhere, any promise or indication that our experience 
of the life of God in community should be, ought to be, must be comfortable. Glorious, yes. Life-changing, yes. Comfortable, whoever said anything about this needing to be comfortable? Is hitting the gym comfortable? But it might make you strong. Is taking medicine when you're sick comfortable? It might save your life. Indeed, a community of deep peace is a community of people that are learning that cross-cultural love is assuming discomfort myself for the comfort of others. Because that's the nature of cruciform, cross-like love. Because you can ask Jesus, it wasn't so comfortable on that cross. And he calls us to love like him. This is the nature of peace. This is the path to the true peace that the apostle is talking about. Well, how do we know? Because he uses language, very honest language, like describing the separations between different racial groups as the dividing wall of hostility. He, in verse 16, even uses the language of reconciliation, which, of course, refers to the healing of relationships after conflict. He's naming it. This is the deep peace that even Dr. King talked about in his letter from a Birmingham jail in which he distinguished between what he called a, a negative peace from a positive peace. A negative peace, Dr. King said, was simply the absence of tension, which is something all we want. A positive peace, on the other hand, he said, is the presence of justice, the presence of Christ. It's the presence of honest engagement, where we're able to look at sin for what it is, where we're able to be honest about our hostilities as well as our histories, where we're not overlooking past wounds, even if that might mean the emotional dial in the room goes up in a way that we can't control. Oh, that we would die to our need to control the environment. We might actually gain real peace. And by seeing our wounds and our hostilities for what they are, we might actually have a chance to receive God's grace for repentance, to be able to own up for our wrongs, whether personal or collective and corporate, to repent of our sins, to be honest, to be broken over wrongs that have been done. And beloved, we need to be honest that the American church just has not given sufficient space to the repentance that's needed to establish this true peace. Where we are face to face, even with tears in our eyes, able to engage one another, and talk both about individual and personal wrongs, but also corporate wrongs. 
And I'm saying face-to-face, which is the advantage of doing this in Christian community. I'm not just talking about watching a PBS documentary. I'm talking about a brother or sister in Christ sitting in this room where you have had honest, yes, sometimes uncomfortable dialogue about the state of things, about relationships, about the headlines, about your engagement. You see, because if you have not had such a direct conversations, you might be friends, but you might not be reconciled. And we're called to repentance, and we're called to forgiveness, even remembering that ascent of facts even historical facts, mere ascent of facts is not the same as repentance in Christ. And so we desire to be a community that talks openly about racism, even as we talk openly about our hope for unity and equity. We talk openly about together the sins, the biblical sins of racial partiality and prejudice, as well as larger structures of oppression and injustice. And again, we do so, though, with the hope of Christ, the readiness to forgive, the expectation that God indeed can and does change our hearts. And just to reiterate this accent of hope, I want to say and make sure that it's clear that racism is a grave sin, but it is not an unforgivable sin. which is how it's often talked about in public places today. Sort of a message that you are racist or perhaps blind to your racism. There's nothing that you can do about it. You'll never change, and it's a lie. Racism, indeed, no sin, is an unforgivable sin that the blood of Christ is powerless to wash and change. There's no part of our fallen humanity that the cross of Christ does not have the power to transform. We are, dear friends, more racist than we dare believe, but in Christ and in Christian community, we can be more loved and transformed than we dare hope. Will we believe this? Thirdly now, to close, cross-cultural community makes room for the other. Cross-cultural community is built on Christ, seeks a deep peace, and makes room for the other. You might have noticed that this passage closes with a, a dynamic picture of a building, and I mean that literally, that it's a dynamic picture. Look at verse 21. In him, the whole building, he's talking about you and me, the church, is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord, and in him you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. Uh, you hear the language that's being used, that we, we are rising to become, we are being built, the work is not yet done. Paul is describing the church 
with the image of a new building that's still under construction. Paul is telling us that, that we're, we're not there for an existing building just trying to squeeze in some new folks. We're a building under construction, indeed a building that's being reconstructed into a wholly new reconciled community in which the Spirit dwells. And what does this mean more practically? That there's a dynamism to the way in which we need to build and grow. That cross-cultural community makes room for the other. It does not simply invite newcomers or outsiders to assimilate into a dominant culture that otherwise remains static. Where we are called, each one of us, to rebuild even the community structures of a church that are reshaped and reformed around different groups and in our case strategically especially reflecting the cultural underpinnings of the local black community and the local Latin American community which include our surrounding neighbors whom we long to reflect in our very pews. Where we are striving to build our church in such a way where there's an elasticity and even a reflection of different people so that when people walk in that they come to say, whether instinctively or after reflection, my goodness, this church was built with a little bit of me in mind. And the way in which we structure our liturgies, that's just the pattern of our worship, and the way in which we give space and room for people to express themselves emotionally as a community, and the way that we pray the most intimate thing about the way we talk with God, where we give different cultural expressions to this. And of course it includes our music, which I hope you know we labor hard to reflect a different variety of cultural forms for the invitation and welcome of people of different backgrounds into the life of our community. But as I said, it doesn't just include the melody and lyrics, but also the personal freedom of expressiveness that we give people in their singing. All these different ways, our social patterns, the food that we eat, the way that we relate to each other, the representation of leadership in our church, all these different ways in which we seek to make room for others. Again, dynamically rebuilding our community in a new cross-cultural reality. Dear friends, it's an invitation in love, not only to discomfort, but to give things up. To let go of my own personal preferences or needs for certain things to be familiar to me, to be the way I like it or the way that I want it. To hear a certain, let's say, song, which may not be your favorite tune or genre but for your impulse not to be the first thought in your mind to be, uh, why can't we sing a different song? I don't like this one, but rather, I'm so glad we sing this one because someone else, my brother or sister on the other side of the room or next to me, may really be engaging with God and the Holy Spirit in this time. 
to learn to think about another person and not just yourself, which of course is the great challenge of sin because we're naturally oriented towards being consumers, rather servants of others. Here's a call in community to be servants of others in making room for one another. And all for what goal? To be a new family. As verse 19 tells us, being members of Christ's household. To, to be even more than just a family, to be a wholly new humanity, which is the language that Paul uses in verse 15. To, to be even a, a new spiritual country, where he talks about us being fellow citizens with God's people, even a new temple, which is a fascinating picture. He says in verse 21, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. The temple, of course, symbolized the presence of God, the God of the universe localized here. This is what God is building cross-culturally in our midst with means nothing less than this. As we grow in cross-cultural unity and racial harmony, that we will have a richer, fuller, God-intended experience of the presence of Christ. That our worship, our fellowship, our prayer, our experience of God will be fuller, will be better in line with all that God intended for us in making us a church. It's hard. It's costly. It's worth it. It's exciting. It's labor. But it's a labor of love and joy. Love not only for one another, our brothers and sisters, as well as our neighbors, but most especially love for our Savior. Because dearly beloved, don't you see at the center of this passage this cross-cultural community? It's what Christ died for. You, this great mix of people and an even greater mix that we long to see is precisely what Christ died for. So will you do it for one another? Will you labor in love and relationship and honesty with Christ as our foundation, making room for one another, building a deep and true and lasting peace through honesty and repentance and reconciliation, we do it for one another, but most of all, won't you do it for your cross-cultural Savior? Let's pray. Jesus, we ask that you would come and do your will. We've seen your will. We've heard about it. It's clear. Do your will in our midst. Make us the community that you want us to be. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and let's sing.